I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of uh, the more fascinating and delightful books of the season is The Dictionary People, the unsung heroes who created the Oxford English Dictionary. The book tells the origin story of the OED and, and that of its editor, James Murray. We see what motivates Murray, an autodidact, to oversee this project and to solicit submissions from members of the public. These crowdsourced definitions for the dictionary provide a more, uh, for a more lively and accurate document of the English language, as each of these slips that are submitted by post provide an example of usage. Some 3,000 contributors from around the world with varying backgrounds provide Murray and his sub-editors with words and examples of usage. They're from all over the world and of varying uh, stations in life. Sarah Ogilvie once discovered an old address book of uh, Murray's in the basement of Oxford University Press, and this sets off for her a journey to get to know the fates of these contributors, what they contributed, and what their motivation was. This book tells some of their stories, and it's nothing less than captivating. For example, the top five contributors each had connections to mental asylums. Sarah Ogilvie is a linguist, lexicographer, writer, and technologist. Raised in uh, Australia, she has lived and worked in the United States, uh, teaching at, at Stanford. She currently teaches at Oxford University, where she is Senior Research Fellow in the Faculty of Linguistics, Philology, and Phonetics, and of Campion Hall. This uh, new book uh, is published by Knopf. We spoke two weeks ago with Sarah joining me from Oxford. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, uh, Sarah Ogilvie. Professor Ogilvie, good morning. Good morning. Hello, Joe. It's great to be with you. Nice to talk to you. I guess it's evening where you are, is that right? It is. <laughs> Um, so at, um, the heart of the book, I, I guess, I mean, there's, there's so many wonderful things in, in the book, but, but the, the central character, I guess, is James Augustus Henry Murray. Um, I mean, there were m many others, uh, before him and after him, but, but he's, he's the, the, the sort of central hero, I guess, if we, if, if we have to call him that in, in, in the book, um, I'm fascinated by his motivation, um, and, and what he desires and, and what keeps him going, I guess, in terms of, of doing what he does. Uh, I, I guess the first thing we'll start with is what does he look like? Oh, so he, he had a long, flowing gray beard, and he was uh, slightly balding, but you'd never know because he, as soon as the University of Edinburgh gave him an, an honorary degree mm -hmm. early on in his editorship of the dictionary. He wore his master's cap every day, even though to go to work, he basically walked out to his back garden and sat in this shed, which, which, which he called the scriptorium. And he would wear the cap and sometimes his gown sitting in that shed. So that's what he looked like. He was quite tall. And I know that because I recently met, I, I was doing a, a book event here in, in Oxford, and a woman came to it who was his great-great-granddaughter, mm -hmm. and she has his chair, and it's the famous chair that he's photographed in in the scriptorium. There's a photo of him sitting in that chair in the book. And anyway, I digress, but just to say that she told me that 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 he was tall and sure enough I sat in this chair and it was definitely a, a chair for a, a tall person <laughs> yeah yeah it must have been fun just but to sit in the chair and not, not yeah not, not yes. even just to see it but to sit in it that must have been cool 
It was super cool for me, yes, because as you say, he is a hero of the book, but he's also a personal hero of mine. And when you ask about what sort of person he was, he was devoted to creating this dictionary. He firmly believed in this task of describing every word in the English language as it was spoken around the world. So not just British English, but English spoken in Canada, in America, in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, everywhere. And that's why he, he, he knew that he or a small group of men sitting in Oxford couldn't create such a mammoth dictionary by themselves. So he crowdsourced it and put out an appeal and asked people around the world to read their lo local books mm -hmm. and send in their local words by writing them out on little sheets of four by six inch paper. And he had no idea whether this would be a success or not, but so many people responded and did that task that thousands of slips were sent in to his home address here in Oxford at 78 Banbury Road. So many people sent in slips that that Royal Mail put a red pillar box outside Murray's house and it's still there today. And that's how the dictionary was constructed. Those, all of those slips helped Murray understand how these words were used in natural written contexts. So it's thanks to the people around the world who responded in that way that the dictionary now exists. Without them, we certainly wouldn't have the world's largest dictionary of English, the Oxford English Dictionary. How different um, is the Oxford English Dictionary, say, from previous dictionaries? I mean, you, you mentioned the crowdsourcing element a moment ago. Um, is, is that how, say, previous dictionaries, is that how they, they created them, or, or was it more of an academic experience? Say? Exactly. It was more of a rarefied academic experience, and dictionaries tended to be more prescriptive mm. rather than descriptive. So when they first proposed the Oxford English Dictionary in 1858, three men proposed the dictionary at a meeting of the London Theological Society. And this was quite a radical suggestion that they were going to create a dictionary that was not only descriptive rather than prescriptive, but that it would be historical. So it would look at the development of words from their very first usage through their life until the current current day. So that's why the Oxford English Dictionary is different from your, from your desktop dictionary, which is a synchronic dictionary that gives you a snapshot of language at a particular time. The OED is different from that. It's a diachronic dictionary, diachronos across time. Mm. So it, it gives you the biography of every word, and it's those quotations that people around the world sent in that allow the lexicographer to tell that story for every word. And, and so the, the value that Oxford sees in, say, creating this endeavor um, and, and in terms of funding it, um, were there arguments against it even, say? Do you know, in the, yes, um, in the early days of the, of the dictionary, the Philological Society, who supported it from its first starting, uh, they had trouble finding a publisher. So it, the dictionary started in 1858, and it wasn't until, and it wasn't until 1879, so 20 years later, 
that Oxford University Press finally came on board and decided to be the publisher. They then funded Murray, but mm -hmm. they funded him in a very smart business way for them, but a poor way for, for Murray in the sense that they gave him 10 years to write the dictionary. The dictionary actually in total took 70 years to yeah. write and Murray beavered on it for 35 years of, of his life. And when they decided to only give him funding for 10 years, they only gave him 10,000 pounds, which is a thousand pounds per per year yeah. and for that murray had to not only pay for himself and his 11 children and his wife uh, but also for anyone who came and helped him and he had a small group of fellow editors and he also had to pay for all of the books himself for the postage out because murray kept a correspondence with these thousands of people who were around the world and of course he had to pay for that postage so there were many times when murray was extremely stressed about about um making ends ends meet and that was always a perennial stress for 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 him yeah and you narrate this through the book about uh, the, the the struggle uh with money um but at the same time th th this speaks to his character and, and his motivation to continue doing it i mean um despite the challenges financially, personally, and, and, and to, to fund the, the endeavor, uh, he continues. He is, as you just said a moment ago, he beavers on. Um, it, it, it's fascinating to see why he does this and, and, and to see the, the sort of character grow as we read the book. But but as you mentioned, he, he keeps his correspondence with his contributors. And, and th these are very special people. These are uh, remarkable people in many different ways. Um, it, it's a, a different kind of person, I guess, that, that wishes to be part of, of, of a dictionary like this and contribute as they do and, and for years, right? That's very true. And in fact, it was through the research for this book that I, that I realized and discovered that this wasn't a prob, this wasn't a project of the intellectual elites, but this was more a project of the outsiders. So Murray himself was an autodidact. He left school at 14. He taught himself 25 languages. When he came to live in Oxford to work on the dictionary, he was in many ways an outsider within Oxford. The university never made him a member of a senior common room of any Oxford colleges. Uh, you know, he was basically working from his back, back garden. So in a way, he could relate to all of these people around the world who sent him in slips and who too were outsiders and I think their motivation was similar to Murray's. I think this was an opportunity for them to be part of a project which was attached to a prestigious university and gave them access to a scholarly world that they were otherwise excluded from. Yeah, and, and um, as you research some of these people in the course of the book, um, finding that diary of his that, that, that has the, the um, names and sometimes the addresses of the people, I mean, th that's a thrilling moment as, as we read the book because for a researcher, um, I, I guess people knew about the existence of this, but not, not many people had, had, say, seen it or used it. Is that right? No one has has ever written about the book or mentioned it in their books or 
or in their articles. So, in fact, when I came across it in a dusty box down in the archives in the basement of Oxford University Press, when I first saw it, because I'm very familiar with pub publications and yeah. writings on the dictionary, because I've written a uh, history of the dictionary myself a decade ago, um, I, I wondered I was the first person to open this little black book, which turned out to be James Murray's address book. And then I found six, six of, of these address books. So that's how we, we now know that there were 3,000 people. We know all of their names and their addresses. And then it took me an eight-year journey to find out more about each of them. I was curious and I wanted to finally give them credit for all the work that they did because some of these people were obsessive and gave so much of their days, years of their life to this task. The, the highest scoring contributor sent in 165,000 slips, so that's 165,000 words. Wow. Um, the next top contributor sent in 151,000. So these are people who gave, who were so generous with their time, and they did this for free. So and so, I really wanted to shine a light on them finally, and that's why it took me so long. And I was working at Stanford University at the time while I was doing this this research, and my students helped me in researching these people. And together, we looked up censuses. And we visited archives and libraries. We searched through eight, um, 19th century newspapers to find out as much as we could. And what, and the picture that, that, that unraveled to us was one of very colorful people. Yeah. As, as you say, they, they are remarkable and they are from such varied backgrounds. Uh, there are far more women than we thought. There are mm -hmm. far more Americans. So this is amazing to think that a dictionary which many people have thought of as a quintessentially British dictionary actually was compiled by thousands of people outside of Britain. And, and thousands of people who, as you said a moment ago, uh, did so did this work for free. And when the, the, the dictionary was finally published, um, without credit, is that right? So yes, yeah, so what what happened was they didn't. So the dictionary started in 1858 and was finally pub, pub, published in 1928. So it took 70 years, rather than wait until 1928 and publish it all in one go, they published it gradually. Mm. So the first little chunk of the alphabet came out in 1884, and then most most years Murray would publish a chunk of the alphabet gradually. So there are about 112 different chunks, which are called fascicles. And in each of those fascicles, in Murray would write a preface, and sometimes he would thank people. So we knew that there were several hundred people, but we didn't know exactly what their contributions were. And it turns out that there were far more than that, that there were actually 3,000. And there are many pe people who may have been mentioned once in like a footnote in the preface, such as Thomas Austin was only mentioned once, and yet he contributed 165,000 slips, and we knew nothing about him until now. And he was, in fact, the most difficult person to find out information about. 
because of the common name, I guess, yeah. but also because he moved around a lot. So in Murray's address book, there were many different addresses all crossed out, and then there was a new address because Thomas Austin moved around England. So he was a difficult person to, to track down. It must have been, because it reads like a great detective story. It must have been fun. Um, also a lot of hard work to, to, to do the, say, the legwork and, and find these people as, as you do in, in the course of this book. Yeah, I mean, there were frustrations, especially with, with Thomas Austin. He took probably four to five years to actually nail. So I'm talking, so it's fun in retrospect, yeah. but, but the actual experience was a little painful. Yeah. So, so you mentioned um, him in, in 165 uh, slips that he sends in. Um, I guess that's the work of, of Murray and, and the sub-editors to, to figure out, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure that not all of them, say, are accurate or, or work out. Um, what's the process once once they get a slip from someone, and, and what sort of research do, do, does Murray or the sub-editors, what do they do just to say, um, verify or nail down what the word mm-hmm. is or, or usage? Because, I mean, some, some of these words they, they would have encountered for the first time themselves through these slips, Definitely. right? That's right. So when a slip would arrive in the scriptorium, Murray would actually get his children, the 11 children, he would pay them a penny per, per hour to sort them. Mm-hmm. So they would sort them alphabetically. And then those, those bundles of slips her word would then go to one of Murray's assistant editors. They would look, they would then um, sort them within a word, they would then sort them chronologically according to the date of the quotations. Uh-huh. And then they would then look and try and tease out the different nuances of meaning within a word. And you were asking about whether they could trust certain slips. Yeah. So they would they they would get to know the quality of a, a contributor's work, and there were certain contributors such as Austin and many others who you'll read about within the book, who they knew were very rigorous and reliable. Um, when they got slips that they weren't sure of, they would go to the Bodleian Library and check those. So they were extremely rigorous in making sure that they were. Um, being um, very disciplined in making sure that 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 this was a quality work, yeah. So as you, as you said, and it's still the same yeah. today. I mean, people yeah. still send, send in slips today, yeah. So as you said a moment ago, um, the, the uh, we, a lot of us think of the OED as as, as particularly British, um, but I, I'm fascinated by Murray's attitude towards, um, say. Other English speakers, Americans especially, uh, Australians even, um, mm-hmm. because as we read in the book, there, there are uh, great contributors from from down under. Um, what is um, what are you able to glean as to how? Because he, he Murray's attitude, he's not a snob, is he? When it comes to, to who speaks English, right? He's not at all. And Murray's first and foremost uh, principle was that if a word was used in an English context, that word must go into the dictionary. So he was very inclusive. And because people were sending him words from all around the world, he was therefore putting in words 
from all around the world. And if you and I went down into the basement, into the archives, and I found many letters, especially from Murray's superiors within Oxford University Press, that were criticizing this. And they were saying, why are you putting all of these foreign words into the dictionary? These outlandish words, they were calling them, <laughs> have no place in an English in an English dictionary, they are decaying the language and things like this. Murray just ignored that and kept on putting them in. So if you actually look at the pages of the first edition of the OED, you will find such a variety of uh, English spoken around the world. And not only did he include words of foreign um origin but also words like there are there are hundreds of american isms in there so they are words that are only used within america uh -huh. um and so yeah so there are many regional words that are only used within that location so his vision of english as being all embracing um language and therefore the dictionary the dictionary being a similar text was I think quite radical for its for its day, and showed great foresight. Yeah, I was, I was going to bring up the vulgarities that that we read in, in your book um, as an excuse to say say some of them on the podcast, but I'm, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But but it, that, that's a part of the book that I found fascinating is is how the, the usage of certain words. Um, have uh, uh, taken on that context of vulgarity either then or now and and how mm -hmm. that's changed i mean i find that fascinating how uh what um uh, may have been say used by um, more common people if you will or, or, or um used in slang if you will um mm -hmm. become part of the language and in, in, in that process say yes so murray was always very inclusive of 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 slang again uh -huh. if it was used in a written source um, with obscenities and coarse words he was living at, at a time and in a context where the obscenities act had, had had just been brought in so there was a pressure for for him not to put obscene words in also during this period of the 1870s there was a large court case going on with another lexicographer called Stephen Farmer who had written an excellent slang dictionary and had put the C word and the F word in uh -huh. it and was being sued for that because of the Obscenities Act. And I found letters in the archive from Stephen Farmer to Murray and and back where they discussed this and Murray decides not to put in the C word and the F word because he didn't want to be sued and he didn't want to bring um, a negative attention to the dictionary. So those words actually didn't get in until the 1970s. Yeah. Also, there were times when Murray would check certain words with, with specialists, and the specialist might suggest not to put it in. That happened with the, a word, with the word appendicitis. So Murray used to send his medical terms to this doctor, yeah. Dr. Um, Dixon, and Dixon wrote back, on appendicitis and said, look, if you put appendicitis in, you are going to have to put all the itis words in. So <laughs> yeah. you're, you're going to be putting in hundreds of these words. I think you shouldn't put it in. So Murray didn't put it in. Um, and when the letter A was published in the 1880s, it 
it was published without the word. Well, in 1902, at the coronation of Edward VII, the king actually got appendicitis and the coronation was delayed. And suddenly everyone was talking about appendicitis, but no one could find it actually in the dictionary. <laughs> so that proved to be quite an embarrassment for Murray. And after that experience, he was always a little skeptical um, and tried to actually err on the side of putting things in rather than leaving them out. These are for people listening to us. These are these are the kinds of stories that make this book such a compelling read. Um, the other the, the thing I enjoyed well, I enjoyed is not maybe the right word, but um, in in your research and finding out um, who these people were, these contributors, you find out uh, their demise and the circumstances of their demise, and some of them are quite eerie, aren't they? Yes, and some, some, some of them are sad. I mean, yeah. most of them are very joyous, and they're an absolute pleasure. Well, they were such a pleasure for me to research and write about, and I hope that they are a pleasure for the, for the, for the reader. But some of them are very, very poignant and led, um, or at least ended up living in a sad way. So one of those characters features in Elf the Lunatics, because there are actually the, the top four contributors all had connections to what were called lunatic asylums uh -huh. at the time, so um, psych psychiatric hospitals. And one of them, called John John Dormer, he started working for Murray as as a teenager and worked extremely hard for ten years, and eventually starts to hear voices coming from the walls of of his house, and he ends up living in in, um, well, being put into a psychiatric hospital. So, yeah, so there are some sad stories here. and But they are stories of people who perhaps reach those points because of their generosity and their obsession mm. um, and their working so hard for free for the dictionary. And that's, that's really another reason why I wanted to shine a light on them and give them credit finally for all the work that they did. Do you think James Murray would have liked this book? Ah, that's a really interesting question. I think he would have because of that fact that it is appreciating people from the fringes and shining a light on them. Uh, yes, and, and also I know that it's really rigorously researched, so I know that that was also um, a principle that that James Murray lived oh. lived by, and also as I think I I show in the chapter F for families where I talk about Murray's family, he was fun and he was a family man, and his children clearly adored him, and he was always playing games, and he seemed to have a, have a great sense of humour, and I I think that there's a fair bit of wit and um, humour in the book, and I hope that he would have enjoyed that. Yeah, that, that comes through in, in, in your writing. Uh, just what a fascinating and fun guy he is. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I looked him up the other day in preparing for a chat, and, and uh, I, I guess there is a movie in which he's depicted. Um, I haven't seen it, obviously. Have you? I have seen it. I watched it on an airplane once, and it's a movie, so... It's a movie based on Simon Winchester's book, which is about one of one of the dictionary people. It's about Dr. Minor, 
who who is one of the three murderers. Uh-huh. Um, and Mel Gibson bought the rights to that book and turned it into a movie called The Professor and the Madman. And Mel Gibson insisted on playing Murray, and Sean Penn plays Dr. Minor. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I've seen photographs of, of Gibson as Murray. Um, it doesn't look anything like the Murray that we see in your book. <laughs> no, it's true, yeah, yeah. He looks like a Hollywood version of what James Murray Yeah, <laughs> I must say, uh, I did used to think that Sean Penn would have been a better mm-hmm. cast for the Murray character, but I guess Mel, Mel Gibson wanted to sort of play the main, the main professor. Yeah. Sarah, this yeah. has been such a pleasure to read this book, and, and I, I've enjoyed it a great deal, and, and, and such a pleasure as well to talk to you today. I so appreciate your time. Have a good evening. Thank you so much, Joe. Bye-bye. The book is called The Dictionary People, The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. It's published by Knopf. Its author, Sarah Ogilvie, joined me on the line from Oxford in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.